everyone. Welcome to HR Works, brought to you by BLR. I'm your host, Steve Bruce. HR Works provides clear, relevant, actionable information on topics that matter to HR professionals. When you're armed with best practices, plus the knowledge to keep your organization in compliance, HR works. I don't need to tell anyone listening that the war for talent is heating up. But where are the pain points and what strategies are helping? To get some hard data on today's recruiting landscape, we turn to talent ex- acquisition experts at ISIMS. With over 3,000 clients who cover 2.3 million jobs a year, they've got good data. To help us sort it out, we asked ISIMS chief economist Josh Wright to join us. At ISIMS, Josh is responsible for analyzing proprietary data to produce fresh insights on emerging trends in the U.S. labor market. He contributes to the publishing of quarterly trends reports, as well as semi-annual reports and blog posts on ad hoc labor topics. In addition, he supports the development of software that allows clients to analyze their own performance relative to industry benchmarks by collaborating with data scientists, software developers, and marketing executives. You can join Josh at BLR's RecruitCon 2017, being held May 11th and 12th in Las Vegas for his keynote, Navigating the New Normal, Recruiting Data in Times of Change. To learn more, visit recruitcon.blr.com. Stay tuned after this interview to learn how HR Works listeners can receive a discount. Josh, welcome to HR Works. Great to be with you, Steve. Let's uh, begin with an overview of the current state of the job market in the U.S. Do job seekers have the upper hand, and is it likely to shift over the next eight months of the year? Well, the, the situation certainly has evolved a lot in the last couple of years. Um, you know, we've come a long way, millions of jobs created since the Great Recession. And uh, for a while there, we were definitely dealing with a job market that was underperforming. And there were a lot of discussions about whether or not the traditional measures of labor market health were really um, the, the right ways to be looking at what was going on up there. There's a sense that um, the economy just wasn't performing the way it used to. And um, indeed, you saw that although the headline measures were start- gradually beginning to improve, some of the secondary indicators about the labor market were not performing as well. And so we had this whole debate starting in around 2014 about so-called slack measures, alternative measures of what was going on in the labor market. Um, and it was clear that they were not doing as well as the famous numbers we've all heard of, non-farm payroll growth and the unemployment rate. Well, fast forward a couple more years, and we've definitely seen some substantial progress in, uh, in, uh, across the board. So the headline numbers continue to have improved, um, and then some of the secondary measures have improved as well, although not quite as much. And yet, um, we had some interesting news actually just yesterday. The Federal Reserve published the minutes from its meeting in March, and in those minutes, we saw that these very influential policymakers, they, um, they basically consider us to be at what economists call full employment. They think that we're about as close as you can get to having as many people employed at one time as you can. So the unemployment rate um, might be able to dip a little bit lower, but it should be hard to sustain it at a lower level without, you know, 
causing some difficulties in the economy that the Fed would have to respond to. Um, so in, in some sense, the Fed was saying, look, this is about as good as it's going to get from the highest level of, of looking at the landscape of the, the high-level indicators. But of course, we know that things have changed in the labor market, and there are still problems out there. There are a number of people that, can't, that don't get to work as much as they would like to. Um, we've got lower labor force participation. There are serious questions about skills gaps and about the participation and the employment levels among certain disadvantaged groups. Um, and not just traditional minorities, but also that white working class that we've heard so much about since the 2016 election. All these are, um, are really significant issues that remain outstanding. But I think in the world a little bit closer to home for you and for us at ISEMS, um, there are also some interesting patterns when you look at the data on hiring. Um, so I, I won't drag you through all the, the ins and outs out there, but, but basically we see that the the relationship between different kinds of variables, what we call job openings and the job hires that are, are published in a government survey, that relationship seems to have changed. And there are a lot of questions about what that's about. Is that related to the weakness in the early years of the recovery coming out of the Great Recession? Is it related to, to demographic changes in the U.S. economy or changes in the labor force? Um, all these things could be significantly part of it. It could also be about skills gaps. but it seems that there's also something about the nature of hiring that has changed. And I think that that shouldn't be too much of a surprise to people like you and myself and many of your listeners, um, because we all know that hiring has become a really dynamic uh, place where the industry is developing new kinds of best practices. And certainly at ISOMS, we see every day how rapidly and dramatically the technology is changing. And so from that perspective, I think it's a little bit less surprising to us than some of the traditional labor market commentators and analysts um, that that we are seeing uh, these these uh, kind of changing dynamics in the data out there that aren't, we're still not sure exactly how to relate it to the changes out there, um, but it does seem to be that something's going on. In, well, in terms of what's going to happen over the next eight months of the year, I mean, I think that the economy's got a very strong head of steam. That's what we're seeing so far. It remains to be seen um, exactly what kind of economic policy program the Trump administration is going to be able to implement either through Congress or without Congress. Um, but um, once they do, I think in the next couple of months, we're going to know a lot more about what the next couple of years might look like. That's great. Thank you for that overview. Now, I know that you've published some research recently on the healthcare and manufacturing sectors. What can you tell us about those job markets and hiring trends that they're facing? Yes, we've uh, taken a look at our own proprietary data uh, from the ISIM system, as well as reviewed um, some government reports, government data series, as well as reports that have been uh, published by other companies and you know, consultancies and think tanks. And we, we did have some interesting findings. You know, in the healthcare sector, as I'm sure you're aware, it, it's a really tight job market. That has been one area that has outperformed relative to the rest of the economy consistently, not only coming out of this recession, but over the course of the last couple of recessions. One of the things that's interesting when you look at the data is that um, it's really been such a remarkably steady uptrend in healthcare employment. So whereas other industries, even if they're growing pretty strongly, like the sector that we call professional business services, they tend to turn down when the rest of the economy turns down in a recession. But that doesn't help happen with healthcare. You know, people just keep on getting sick, and they've got certain demographic trends that are just driving up 
uh, the payrolls for healthcare workers. And so as a proportion of the total hiring landscape in the U.S., healthcare actually gains ground with every recession. And um, the projections that have come out of government agencies like the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics suggest that that's not going to stop anytime soon. So um, they, uh, uh, over the course of 2014 to 2024, they projected uh, what the growth in hiring would be for a broad array of different occupation types. And of these uh, occupation types, it took you to think about 30 broad categories. Um, there are only six of them that they projected to grow in double-digit percentage terms over that 10-year period. And of those six, four of them came in healthcare. So it tells you just how how hot this sector is going to be. Um, and it's not just a question of how many people they'll be hiring, but they'll be hiring different kinds of people because we know that the U.S. population as a whole is changing. It's getting older. Um, of course, the medical technology is changing as well. And there are so many changes that, um, that are taking place under, you know, for now, we still have the Affordable Care Act. And clearly, the debates over federal government health care policy aren't aren't ending. They're they're ongoing. So there certainly could be more changes. But, but I think ultimately the government is trying to respond to the need for more health care because of the changes in the population. And one of the things that, they, that we all need to do is try and control costs. And one of the ways you do that is you hire more people who don't command as high of a salary. So you've got a lot of these so-called semi-skilled positions like um, uh, home health aides and medical assistants who are going to be hired. And that's going to contribute more and more to the growth in health care payrolls. Looking at our own data, um, we saw a, a lot that confirmed some of these trends. This isn't all based on government data. But one of the things that we noticed was also healthcare companies are actually relatively lean operations. We found that about 80% of their payrolls, or, or of their new hiring, I should say, was going to actual healthcare providers and um, you know, clini clinical workers, people who are actually going to take your temperature and give you the shots and prescribe the medication, um, rather than uh, spending a lot of money on back office operations and administrative um, uh, concerns. So that's that, that, that's actually you know that was distinctive relative to the other industries that we looked at. That uh, healthcare is running a pretty tight ship. When we look over at, um, uh, well, I was mentioning about the semi-skilled workers, there's also a question about um, who's going to take those jobs, uh, because traditionally this has been viewed as women's work um, in, in a number of uh, cases, not so much the doctors, but some of the lower-skilled positions like health aides and nurses, and, um, and I alluded before to some of the changes in the in the U.S. workforce, what we see is that while women have been working more and more, men have slowly been decreasing their work in the, the amount that they are participating in the U.S. labor force. And one of the questions we have is, you know, why exactly is that? And if there are all these jobs that are going unfilled, we're hearing about nursing shortages and that they're only going to get worse, why don't men want to take up those jobs? And so people are saying it's not just a question of a skills gap, but there's a, a question of a kind of or skills mismatch, but an identity mismatch, that maybe men resist taking these jobs because they view it as women's work or they view it as um, somehow not aligned with whatever they want to accomplish in their lives. And uh, there are questions about the way these jobs are structured in terms of what the pay rates are, but there's also a question of identity. When we look over at manufacturing, um, looking at our own data, we were surprised to see that um, about 9% of the jobs in uh, of the hires in 2016 for manufacturing companies were actually in positions that are classified as uh, computers or math. So these are 
statisticians, mathematicians, computer scientists, programmers, software developers, um, really high-tech kinds of jobs, which is surprisingly high. We found only about 22% of the hires in 2016 were for um, what are called production workers, the kind of people who would work on an assembly line or a factory floor. And I think that speaks to this trend where th there has been a lot of discussion recently about the future of manufacturing jobs and how it's all about higher skilled and more technical positions. And I think the message that we saw in our data is that that future is now. We've already got um, you know, a really all, about half as many of the hires for assembly workers. Uh, that That's already uh, the amount that, you're, um, that are, is being allotted to these kinds of high-tech computer-oriented positions. And the question is, are, are we training people today to get those kinds of uh, positions and, and fill them so that we can have a vibrant manufacturing sector? And there's research out there from uh, Deloitte and the Manufacturing Institute that suggests that's actually going to be a big problem um, because uh, they, they predict we're going to have um, a shortage of several million jobs that we won't even be able to fill because we don't have the right people with the right skills for that. Well, these are uh, interesting trends and big challenges for everybody. When you um, drill into the dynamics of supply and demand for specific professions and occupation types, not just industries, what do you see there? Well, here we found, uh, again, some surprising uh, numbers. So when we were looking at the number of, we, we took a simple measure of the number of applicants per position. And we looked across a whole variety of different kinds of occupation types. And here we saw just how acute the shortages are for nurses and other kind of uh, skilled and semi-skilled healthcare workers. So the, that ratio of applicants to individual positions, how many people are applying for each job posting, was actually lower for nurses, nurses than it was for software developers and computer programmers. This really surprised us because you hear, sure, you hear about nursing shortages, but you also hear about shortages of programmers and technical people. So it underlines just how acute the pressures are going to be in the healthcare world. Um, we also found evidence for just how quickly the job market is changing, and um, I think one of the challenges for job seekers today is that it's hard to keep up with how rapidly the changes of employers are, uh, are taking place. So there's actually quite a distinct difference between the applicants per position for software developers versus web programmers or, or web developers. And web development was a really hot job a couple of years ago, and I, I think it's still, uh, this doesn't tell us that, they, that we're not getting that many jobs created for web developers. I think that's still healthy, but I think what we see is that there are a lot more people who are throwing their hat in the ring for web development. Perhaps they see it as easier to enter, or maybe they just think it's more interesting. Um, but there are many more applicants for those positions. And um, I think that speaks to the fact that the, the, the workers are catching up with that demand, but they're not catching up as quickly uh, with the demand for software development. Similarly, we, we saw that you know, we're, we're hearing uh, questions about automation and uh, which jobs are going to be taken by the robots and machine learning versus for the humans. And everyone says, well, it's more technical skills and more creativity that's going to be required. And we saw evidence of this as well in even fields like finance, where um, there is significantly greater um, number of applicants per position for jobs that take less creativity, like being a bookkeeper or an accountant, relative to being a loan officer, where you really have to exercise judgment and read the people that you're interacting with. Um, so definitely a confirmation of that trend. 
All right, this is great data that you have. Um, everybody's hearing a lot about data and about big data. So what's happening with software to help HR managers collect meaningful data that they can use to refine their recruiting? It's really a remarkable landscape, but when you look at how the world of HR is getting technologized, it's just an explosion of new kinds of software companies that are coming out there and finding ways to help HR managers perform the work they need to do. And as they help them do that work, that software ends up recording the actions and the behavior of both the HR managers and the employees, or in, in my world of talent acquisition, both the recruiters and the candidates as well. So there are all these new ways of, um, of observing what's going on in the hiring process, which is something that economists haven't been able to see before. So uh, as an economist, I take a look at this, and it's like being given the first microscope. Suddenly, you look inside a cell and you realize there's all these dynamics that are going on in there that you never had access to before. Well, if managers um, are collecting their own data, what, what sort of challenges might they face when they try to compare it to government agencies' data or private vendors' data or competitors' data? They're going to find that it is a much more complicated job than they thought. That's certainly something that I've discovered. Um, I will tell you, Steve, you know, working in the government is not easy. And uh, <laughs> I, I used to work at the Federal Reserve, so I have some appreciation for that. Uh, but I've, give, I've got a whole new appreciation about it now because um, I see what it takes to actually create data sets. Uh, before, I would work with data sets that other people had prepared. But now I'm working with our data scientists and uh, taking a look at questions of, well, how do you make sure that you not only extract the data effectively, but then that you're able to clean it and make it easy to compare. And um, you know, there are just so many steps in that process of uh, making the data ready for being published. And then you've got to figure out well, how can you actually compare it to outside data sources. You've got to find ways to assign each of those companies in your data set to a particular industry. You've got to find a way to map each of the individual positions to a specific occupation code, because the data is really all most meaningful once you aggregate it together and compare it uh, both internally within the, within your data and then comparing it to outside data sources. And uh, there, there are a lot of ins and outs of figuring out what are those standards and how you're going to apply them to systems that in many cases were not developed with the idea of how are you going to um, map to government standards. Um, and now you have to figure that out after the fact. You're going to take what you already have and connect the dots. So collecting it is one thing, and then really making it uh, meaningful comparisons is going to be another challenge to go along with it. It seems also um, we have a periodic stream of news about changes in how candidates search for jobs and how re recruiters search for candidates. What, what trends that recruiters need to be aware of today? Well, it, we've already gone on at length about the kinds of issues that I'm interested in, the kind of data that I'm working with, I think in some sense the changes in technology and data analysis, that's nice for data geeks like me who want to just think about these issues and help other people think about them. But I think from the perspective of a recruiter, it's really about being smarter and more efficient in your own job. And, uh, and so that means you know, looking at technology that's going to help you get through your own tasks more quickly, but also 
help you think about the work that you do in whole new ways. So uh, we at iSIMS provide software that helps you keep track of everything that you're doing and um, streamline it into one kind of interface. And then we're also building a platform that allows you to integrate the, all the different tasks that all your different HR software might help you be, or all your different talent acquisition software might be helping you accomplish. Um, and one of the most interesting things that some of these software providers are helping you do is get better at matching your individual jobs to individual candidates. And I think um, you know that's a, a really exciting thing uh, to be involved with improving our ability to match good people with good jobs. But I think that it, on top of all that kind of boosterism for technology and, um, and, and being clever, I think it's really important for recruiters to also step back and, and realize that being smarter about the way they do their jobs is not just about using the latest gizmos, but it's also about applying you know, a skill set that I think is really core to being a recruiter. It's about applying critical thinking. Just as you have to bring critical thinking to reading a resume or interviewing a candidate, I think it's really important to bring critical thinking to the data that you're reviewing and understanding that you've always got to look beyond the surface. It's great to understand what are the general trends and what are the aggregated summary statistics, but you've still got to think about individuals and you've still got to think about subgroups some of whom, you know, there's a whole distribution of people that are being squished into these numbers. Those numbers are meaningful and powerful, but you've always, always got to do a sanity check at the end to think about what might these numbers be obscuring? What, what don't they tell you? So it sounds like maybe the days of getting thousands of applicants that aren't qualified, maybe they're over, but now you've got good applicants. You really have time to pay attention to selecting the right one. Now, the changes... Absolutely. These uh, latest changes in technology and industry best practices, what implications do they have for the economy as a whole? Well, I think that if we can develop the ability to match people with jobs in a way that is uh, more effective, get tighter fits between candidates and the positions, as well as get them into those positions more quickly, that should really increase the productivity of individual companies and the economy as a whole. We should have a lower level of what economists call frictional unemployment. We should just have lower unemployment in general, overall, all else equal. And we should see faster economic growth, and we should see happier, more productive people who can accomplish their tasks more, more effectively and are a little bit happier about the work that they're doing. I think also that if we are able to extract from these systems good data, as I've been suggesting, and we can now have better informed research and you know, push the frontiers of the way we understand the work of HR and the work of talent acquisition, that could ultimately feed into better policies by governments and better practices by businesses, and that should also uh, feed into faster economic growth as a whole, as well as happier employees. Well, that's a nice, bright outlook. Um, to sum this all up, Josh, any final thoughts for our listeners? Well, I would say that although it is crucial to upskill yourself and de develop your ability to engage with these technical subjects of data analysis and the new technologies that are coming online, it's crucial to keep it human in your work. And that's not just applying to critical thinking I was talking about before, but I think it's also important to speak up because policymakers executives and researchers like myself, we need to hear your human stories. We need them in order to make sure that we are not missing some of that reality or what in 
in the military they refer to as ground truth. You've got people in the Department of Defense making big decisions, but they need to know how people on the ground are affected by that and, and make sure that they, they stay in sync with them in some sense. So keep it human. That would be my final thought. Great, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us today and providing these very helpful insights. It was a pleasure. Remember, listeners, you can hear more from Josh at RecruitCon in Las Vegas, where he will serve as the opening keynote speaker on May 11th. RecruitCon 27 will arm you with the tools and tactics you need to keep up with new trends, streamline hiring processes, sharpen interview skills, improve onboarding, and more. And as promised, here's how HR Works listeners can receive a discount. Go to recruitcon.blr.com, click on the Register Today button, and during the registration process, enter the code HRWORKS in all capital letters. That's one word, HRWORKS, in the discount code box for $100 off your registration. Listeners, please let me know what HR Works should cover next. Bruce at blr.com. Thanks for listening. This is Steve Bruce for HR Works. The opinions expressed on HR Works do not represent legal or any other type of professional advice and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice from a qualified attorney licensed in your state.